Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The 80s Rewind Show podcast. It's time, it's time to bring you yet another amazing episode. And now, welcome your host. Rob. The Face for Radio Burgess. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello. It's 80s Rewind Show podcast with me, Rob, the Face for Radio Burgess, and welcome along to this episode. I've got an absolute belt for you. I know I say it every time, but I have. Every guest I speak to is amazing. Before I get into it, don't forget, if you want to contact me, you can get me at the 80s Rewind Show at gmail.com. That's the 80s Rewind Show at gmail.com. If you just want to say hello and talk some 80s, I'm absolutely fine with that. If you've got any ideas for guests, or if you know a guest that you think would be great to talk to, you can pass the details on for me as well. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tell all your friends about the show. And if you go into Facebook and type in the 80s Rewind Show, we're on there as well. I've got an 80s page where I just put really funny pictures on of 80s stuff that makes me laugh. Um, anyway, today's show, we've got the one and only Owen Paul had a hit with You're My Favourite Waste of Time. Uh, we spoke about his early days being interested in football. We talk about bands and he worked for Radio 1 for a little while. We talked about that as well. Um, great guy, great guest. We had such a lovely chat and he's a lovely, lovely man. Uh, I say it every time, all the 80s guests are absolutely wonderful, and it's absolutely true, and Owen Paul is no different, an absolutely wonderful guy. Anyway, let's get into it, shall we? So, going way back to the start with, it was it football, Celtic, you were signed to Celtic? Was, yeah. Was right? Yeah, it was, it was funny, actually, I was hearing, there's like a, a new Bono podcast, something to do with a book, but it's an audio book or something that's coming out. Right. To celebrate, to celebrate something to do with Bono's anniversary of whatever, blah, blah, blah. In that podcast thing, he talks about how when he was at home and he was a little spotty kid and he was looking for, you know, a way not to have to go to work. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) Right? I I, I will send you the link so you can see it, right? Oh, thanks. Because when when he talks about it, there's little cartoons about jobs and things that he was expected to do. And he's like, I didn't want to be that guy. I don't want to go to work for so many hours a day and do exactly the same thing for the rest of my life. I wanted to be something else. And then he said he decided in his own head that the only way out of this was to be great at something. Right. And and he, he, he said then, he said, I knew I wasn't good at maths. My cousin was better at maths. Uh, so they were great and they went on to be a scientist or something. And anyway, the point I'm making is it's very similar with me. Mm. The um, When I was very, very young, I was very, very shy. Uh, and as opposed to me wanting to get out of not going to work, <laughs> I wanted I wanted to come up with something that would allow people to talk to me rather as opposed to me having to talk first. Right, I see. Right, right. So I'm like I don't know, t- eight or ten or something, and very much uh, from a working class background. And football was massive, still is yeah. in my family, and. I got quite good at it, and I thought, actually, this is this is quite handy. This, uh, and I played for my country, schoolboy level. Played for my school and my borough and my city and whatever. And then Celtic spotted me, as you mentioned, mm. and signed me when I was thirteen, fourteen. And I thought, whoa, hang on a minute, this is going to work for me. <laughs> uh, 
and my dad was uh, Irish, so Celtic was his, you know, yeah, pan- panacea, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Uh, is, that, is that the right word? Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah. Well, anyway, anyway, that'll do. And um, <laughs> so, so I get signed and I'm playing with Charlie Nicholas, Paul McStay, Tommy Burns. I think my manager at the time was Billy McNeil. And it looked like that was going to be the way forward. And I, was, I, I would end up doing that for a living. Mm. But actually, the complete opposite is true. I found it very, very difficult. <laughs> and I thought, and I, and I thought, I'm, and a bit like Bono, I couldn't, I thought, you know what? I'm quite good at this, but I'm not great at yeah. this. And top of that, the training, the physical training was like, didn't suit me. Even now I'm 60, uh, <laughs> my, my frame is quite small and quite fragile, you know. Right. And I wasn't made, and I used to watch the other guys like Roy Aitken or, the, or I mentioned Charlie Nicholas. I mean, me and Charlie Nicholas used to play up front. Right. Both for country or city and for Celtic, right. And I, and I, and I saw him over the time that I, we were training and, you know, and being signed. He started to bulk up and get bigger and, you know, and started to look like a real pro. And I just wasn't that guy. I just couldn't cope with it. Right. You know, the, the, when we used to get to training, because I'd go to school, uh, be there for nine o'clock, usual thing at school, uh, then go to training for Celtic. And the minute I left school, I would jump on a train off the Celtic. And the first thing you had to do at Celtic, right, is you had to run around the track <laughs> cause, because people were coming at different times, right? Yeah from all over the city or Scotland or whatever. And they used to say, look, when you get there, get changed, just run around the track until the coach shakes you over and you'll get involved. Some nights I'd be left on there and lots of others were left on there running around that track for two hours. Right. Just, just it was keeping you busy, I just, suppose. Just mundanely running around in a circle, but a massive circle of 800 metres. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I, and as time went on, I thought... This is not for me, you know. This is this not for me. And then I got lucky. Uh, some would say, if you were a buyer or a listener, mm-hmm. the audience didn't get lucky. But then punk happened. Yeah. And that and that changed my life like that, like in a second. Was it the Sex Pistols then, for you that did it? Is that right? Yes. It w- well, it was inadvertently. Right. So if I can ex- if I can explain, in nineteen blah seventy. Five gone into seventy six, I think it was late seventy six. Let's see. Um, when when the punk thing happened, I didn't really know much about it, yeah, or heard of it or anything. Uh, but my brother, and it seemed everyone all over the country was stopped. They weren't going to um, youth clubs and that kind of thing, and suddenly they were forming bands everywhere. <laughs> just out because, of the blue, right? Yeah. <laughs> they just were right, yeah. and then all of us, all of a sudden, in our house. My brother and his friends from school that I knew too, because we were just a couple of years apart uh, at our secondary school, they started rehearsing in our basement, right. right? Now, that makes me sound quite posh, as if I had a basement. But <laughs> believe, believe me, it wasn't posh at all. It was in a tenement building. If you want to Google the word tenement, see what they look like. Yeah. Brilliant buildings, but they're very old school, very working class. Anyway, we had a basement, and then the, these guys, my brother Brian and a couple of other guys, which I'll name in a minute, uh, they would they would go downstairs, and I'd be sitting at the top of the stairs because I was too young. I wasn't allowed to go take part or even just to listen. So I'd sit at the top of the stairs, and they used to before they started rehearsals, right? They used to play seven inch vinyl to motivate themselves, right? Before before they started rehearsal, right? So I would hear them play Anarchy in the UK, which I thought was the most incredible sound I've ever heard on 
you know, yeah. prior to that, my, my older brother, John, used to play a lot of prog rock stuff, like oh, okay. Yes or, e- or ELP or that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I, and I, I thought music was like that. Then the Sex Pistols noise came up from the basement, and I was like, what the <laughs> hell is that? I was like, this, this speaks to me. And then weirdly, and it sounds a bit happy and strange and spiritual, but I, I felt like it, it was talking to me, right? Yeah. So, so they play the Clash as well sometimes, uh, White Riot and similar, and the Damned, Meet Meet Meet, and other songs. And I used to hear this, and I wasn't really interested in what they were doing downstairs. <laughs> I just wanted to hear the vinyl they would play before they made their noise, right? So anyway, anyway, as I said, everybody at that time would join in bands instead of doing other things. So they formed a band. Then I got asked because I was quite pretty. Uh, you, I know you can't play, but just stand there and look good. <laughs> you know, here, here's a guitar. What's a guitar? Learn how to hold hold it. So I used to study Mick Jones. Right. And Keith Richards and go, okay, I'll put it quite low down. That'll look good. Uh, but I, I wasn't playing anything. The amp wasn't switched on or anything. Right. So I started to do gigs and things or whatever. And, uh, and then as time went on, as you do in any walk of life, I started to learn my trade. Mm. So, you know, as, as time went on, I got used to big crowds. The, the live music scene in the sort of late 70s into the early 80s was massive. Yeah. It's, not like, it's not like now where, you know, if you don't sing a, a cover song when you're playing at a bar or whatever, yeah. then everybody, everybody walks out. Then it was like people wanted to hear new stuff and they would have unknown bands. And, you know, the band that I was in, we'd go to places like Aberdeen or Dundee or Edinburgh or whatever. Where we're unknown completely, and the place would be jam packed. Yeah, It'd be three, four, three, four hundred people all looking to hear new music. You know, but anyway, as time went on, uh, I started to watch the other guys in the band go, watch their fingers on the guitar, and go, oh, hang on, what are they doing? Okay, uh, okay, we must handshake. That's a D. I figured out right, all right that's okay. and then you can play an A like this, or you can play it like this across the bar. And I was like, I started to learn things. I was like, mm. okay. So then I had an, an, an A and a D. I didn't know they were called that. I just knew there were two shapes that made a nice noise, right? So then I figured that out. And then the guys that were still rehearsing with my brother, take you back, right, downstairs. After their rehearsals, we'd come upstairs and socialize and whatever. And one of them was a guy called Charlie Bocho. And my brother Brian, Charlie Bocho, and Jim Kerr were... The simple mind. They were, yeah. Oh, they oh. were in my, they were in my basement, right? Wow. So, so anyway, Charlie, one this one time, came in and I was talking about. I was a fan of Bill Nelson from Bebop Deluxe at the time, but I, 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 I was sitting there trying to make a, some kind of noise out of the guitar, and he went, "On, don't panic. Here's the shape of this. Here's an E. Here's the thing. Just learn those four chords." I said, and that'll do your whole life. I was like, <laughs> what? I was like, what are you serious? <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, Lou Reed has done it. Bob Dylan has done it. He said, this is all you need. Just right, here's yeah. four chords. So I, you know, robotically learned the four chords over time and then started to create my own songs out of those four chords. Right? And still could, I mean, even to this day, I'm not a virtuoso, but. Yeah, uh, you know. But at that at, at that time, I could create a song out of those four chords in one shape or another. Yeah. And then and then with the band that I was in, I found that the song that I heard in my head, when the other guys got involved, I sound like a bit of a you know 
fascist here, but I, the, when they would play it or rehearse it, I was like, nah, it's not like that. I don't yeah. hear it like that. And it started to change. And obviously, if you're going to compromise, you, you have to give and take. And whatever. So I ended up, this, over time, the songs just didn't sound like I imagined it. So right. my life with the, my life with the band didn't last very long as a result of that. Right. You know, because the more and more I went on with it through my teenage, late teenage years, I started to write more and more songs and I became the main songwriter in the band, but nothing sounded like I imagined. <laughs> <laughs> so then I thought, mm, maybe I should try this on my own. And then into the sort of early 80s, like 80, 81, you got suddenly there's these new gadgets. There's like a DX7 keyboard and a little dramatics uh, TR-808, yeah. TR-606 drum box. And I could actually start making demos on my own. Mm. And that was a life changer for me. Suddenly I could then figure out the way I heard a song in my head and then try and get it down on a little cassette machine or whatever. Yeah. And it started and it started to sound more like the way I imagined it. And um when I was in the band that I was in, I was spotted by a guy called Peter Powell mm-hmm. from Radio One. That's right, yeah, DJ. Uh, yeah. And uh we became friends and he, you know, he liked the band, but we weren't much in touch, right? Yeah. And then after, I think it must be like 81, early 81, 82, uh, I left the band, as I said, and within 24 hours, get a phone call and it's Pete saying, hi, Orn, I, I didn't want to be the guy to tell you to leave that band, but uh, I've always felt you've got a thing. Yeah. But the, but the band didn't. <laughs> and so, so, but I waited he said, and I'm going to manage you. Nice. I was like, well, Pete, I was like, Pete, you're on Radio One. He went, Yeah, we're not going to tell anyone I'm managing you. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of appealed to me. I thought, okay. So we met up. I did more demos, more things, and he started to fund my career from behind the scenes. At the same time, I was, uh, uh, I actually worked for him. Right. So this is this is way before I was famous. So I used to do the Radio One road shows, be the guy that gave out signed photographs with Pete and held the security back and because right. you know, in those days the numbers were like incredible amounts of people could go to these were. things yeah. imagine you know other than fat boy slim who would go to a beach in you know whatever <laughs> uh, <laughs> just to hear a dj play some records it's you know, crazy isn't it? it's crazy but i mean there, now there it's, was now it's commonplace but then you're right yeah it was yeah, yeah it was yeah. it was a crazy thing it was hundreds of thousands of people were just like wow did that um, i used to do did that sort of yeah. hearing all those musicians and those records? Did that help your writing from that moment onwards as well? Your songwriting, did it, you sort of start picking up the, what the crowd was doing to certain songs and stuff? And no, no, oh. I, I'm not like I'm not like that at all. It's one of one of my it's almost it's my biggest weakness. Okay, I never I never play to an audience. Right. Uh, with with the songs, obviously, if you, if you get paid to go and do it at the '80s festival, let's say, which I do plenty of, right? Then. You don't play, hey, here's my new song. <laughs> <laughs> then 20,000 people go, bye. <laughs> no, and they go to the bar or whatever. You don't do that. So yeah. when you're in that circumstance, I understand the game. and It's about entertainment and giving people a good time. And, and I'll play, that's my big song and other songs from the, the era and whatever. Yeah. But when, you're work- when I've been working on my own, my own material, uh, I never go, what will people like? Right. Okay. I never think like that ever. Uh, basically, and I don't even. I'm not like. Um, I've heard Gary Barlow does sits at a piano without anything happening, days on end. Yeah. Going, 
ding, 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 until he finds a good seat and then off he goes. I think Phil Collins used to do the same. Right. I don't touch the, I don't touch an instrument at all. Okay. I just I just go about my way, merry way, doing things, you know, being a dad, being a granddad, right? So, <laughs> uh, and whatever. And then suddenly I hear a song in my head. And and it's always been the same since yeah. I was very, very young. To this day, it's exactly the same. I hear the whole song. I don't hear like an idea for a song. Right. I hear the whole I hear the whole thing. Every word, everything. And it plays back in my head over and over. Yeah. And then the sort of the process for me then is to figure out how to play it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so then I've got to figure out, okay, I'm hearing piano there, but I can't play the piano. So I sat down, I remember this well, and uh after my Charlie Bocho from Simple Minds, you know, you just need four chords and away you go. Yeah. I remember I remember I bought myself a keyboard and I thought, okay, well and you're hearing a lot of things with pianos and keyboards in it and things. So you're gonna have to you're gonna have to learn that. <laughs> so uh, and I thought maybe maybe and I, I, I turned out to be right. The mathematics for any instrument is the same, right? You know, F, G, A, it all goes in sequence. A, B, C, D, da, da. Yeah. So if it, so after I, I, I sat with a keyboard, just blindly looking at it, with not touching it, going, right, okay, what do we do next? <laughs> and then I go, then I go, ding, ding, ding. Okay, okay, don't know what that is, but okay, there's a white note, there's a black note. Oh, okay, that's weird. Ding ding, and then I go. Okay, let's try two fingers. Ding ding ding. But I felt like I was when I did the two finger thing. It was quite weird because I'm an old blocker. I used to think, hang on a minute, that's two. That's two finger thing. That sounds like Brian Eno. Yeah. <laughs> turns out, turns out that's all he can play. Just two <laughs> so then I go three. I go okay, and then it turns out in later years, uh, when you're using three fingers, that's a triad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just going, is it nice or not? Can I, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I think seven days it took me. Wow. With it just blindly looking at it. And then I suddenly went, hang on a minute, the math is the same. So then yeah. I could incorporate pianos into the songs that I'd hear, heard in my head and I could play that. Then I learned to play a bit of drums because my brother was a drummer. Still is a drummer. And so I'd, even though he's a left-hander, I used to go be furious when I'd switch the drums around to a right hand. <laughs> That's how he knew I was in the room. <laughs> you can never hide. He's like, yeah. He was like, hang, hang on a minute, my hi hat and snare are not not in the same place. I was like, eh. I was hoovering. Honest. It's funny. I'm left-handed, my, and my my wife says the same. She's always going, "You moved the kettle the wrong way." She can tell. Yeah, you she can tell. Can what tell I've been right. in. He, he, I, I would try and put his drum kit back exactly like he had it. Right. Never gonna work. I was miles off. Miles off. So anyway, I learned I learned a bit of drums, learned piano, whatever. But at no point did I go, okay, so you know, what kind of music would the people like now? Right. Okay. I don't. I, I just it is whatever the song is, and then it either works, it doesn't, or it, it sells or it doesn't. <laughs> I've had look, I've had loads of big sellers and loads of non-sellers, and you know, and that's just the way it goes. And I live, I live by that. I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, if you want to make records that are successful. Uh, you get the team of songwriters involved. <laughs> they know how they know how to do this. Uh, there's a, a friend of mine called Amy Wodge, and Amy uh, writes songs for Kylie and the Eurovision one that's out now called Space Man. Mm-hmm. Whatever she has a formula of what people will like, and then little teams all get together and you know, and then go, okay, why don't we put a bit of this in and a bit of that? And Ed Sheeran does the same with his little team. 
Yeah. Uh, even though they end up in the court sometimes, but, uh, <laughs> because they're doing, I think I think some of his team aren't telling him where yeah. they got the idea for the song. Influence, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, then, and then it's called oh, just it's just a little nod to Marvin Gaye. Really, yeah. it's about a six million dollar nod. <laughs> Ed. <laughs> anyway, you get you get the idea, right? Yeah. But I was never that I was never that way inclined. I, I, I never would, I can't, I don't even see, even now, because my, my, one of my musical heroes always has been is David Bowie. Right? Oh, yeah, amazing. Can you imagine David Bowie sitting in a room with a team of songwriters? No. It, um, none Fre- of it. And Freddie none Mercury. None of it would yeah. have happened. Freddie Mercury as well, no, yeah. No chance, no chance. These guys, you know, yeah. they do their thing, and that's what makes it unique. You know, you don't just go, here's the formula, like Stalkick and Watman would do, which is a brilliant formula, good on them. Yeah. But I used to say, when I was fighting with my record company, I used to say, look, you've got bros, they'll do whatever you want, they'll wear whatever clothes you say, you know, I'm a rock guy, let me do something else, I don't want to be them, yeah. I don't want to be like, you know, like, I love you too, right? The band, not you, I don't mean I love you. <laughs> oh, that's very kind of you. <laughs> yes, I love the band, you too, right? Yeah. And I always have. I saw them in a pub once in 1981, I think, and they were amazing. Yeah. And, and you know, and I thought, but anyway, at no point in my head did I go, I want to make records like that. Yeah. But I never thought that. I thought, well, I don't want to make records like that because that's what they do. Yeah. I'll do something else. That's their thing. Know? Yeah. Yeah. That's how. That's the way I work, and I still do it to this day. Yeah. So you were giving out autographs for Peter. You were saying, and what? So, yes. And then, so did you do sort of an apprenticeship at the radio station for a while? Well, basically what would happen is that uh, I got hired to, because they, they were inundated with brand new releases right. on, a week, on a weekly basis, right? And because him or Mike Reed or Simon Bates or whoever, they're like constantly figuring out what they're going to do on their show and they're doing telly and they're doing adverts and whatever. No one was actually listening to the records. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I used to be Pete's researcher and getting the new releases by unknown bands and things because his show was about that. Right. You know, about like about like John Peel's show. They try and find new things and whatever. They just they don't want to play the usual chart order. Yeah. So I, I so I'd be sitting there with like fifty records and then or more. On a weekly basis, I used to do it on a Friday night, I remember, the, the bulk of it. Then I'd take them home over the weekend and go, nah, yeah, nah, yeah, nah. And yeah. then come come the Monday, I'd say to Pete, okay, we've got, we got 70 records, but I think there's like eight that I want to play to you now. See what you think. I play. Yeah. Put the vinyl on. Put the vinyl on with a scratchy needle and all the thing. And um, then he'd go, yeah, okay, like that one. Don't like that one. Who are they? i go, this is a new band from Liverpool or Birmingham or whatever. I tell them the basic background story. And we found and played some brilliant things on air before no one else was, like Duran Duran. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, Culture Club. Nice. Uh, I remember the Frankie thing. Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Oh, right. I think my sister Sledge. <laughs> yeah. Not, not Frankie. <laughs> what you meant that one? Oh, man. No, not that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I remember the. I remember seeing the sleeve for Relax, wow. and thought that's that. I thought that's a bit strange. Played the record, I thought this sounds amazing. Trevor Horn all the way. Oh, yeah. well, excuse me, Trevor Horn. Wow, I was yeah. like, I didn't, I didn't even know that was Trevor Horn at that time, and I was like, this record sounds incredible. Yeah. And then, and then Pete was playing it, and loved it, 
and went on for ages and ages before it got banned or anything. Uh, even though another DJ at Radio 1 then said, I'm never playing this kind of stuff on my radio show. <laughs> well, Pete had been playing it for a month. Yeah. <laughs> and and no one had bothered. They were fine with it, you know? Yeah. The guy, the BBC guys, the big legs, they were all fine with it. It was only until somebody said on oh, air, I'm not playing this. I'm throwing it in the bin. Yeah. Then it all became a national issue and it went on to become number one. Changed the Made them a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, excuse me. Best thing ever. <laughs> Well, on top of that, the records were great anyway. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's because it's all very well getting some kind of um, uh, controversy, you know, and headlines and getting the tabloids involved. But if the records are rubbish, it's not going to work. Yeah. My old tutor Those... at college, he, he got a record banned. Uh, I can't remember who he said it was, but I think it was George Michael. I think it was I Want Your Sexy, he got banned by accident. And he was basically passing through the office. And they said, oh, right. sign, sign this for us. And they said, what is it? He said, oh, it's about a record. We're not sure on. He went, all right, just signed it. And then it turns out he was one of the 12 that got it banned. <laughs> and he didn't realise he was no, signing the thing. No, he just thought they were oh, just, oh, I'll just sign this. And he, he loves that record. That's the only part. He thinks it's a brilliant album. Oh, it's a brilliant album anyway. But yeah, he accidentally yeah. signed it and just went off. And he was like, oh, oh dear. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that's, that's how it goes. But, that, yeah, but in exactly. effect, that's what I was doing with Peter Powell with his Radio 1 shows. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would get the records in advance, play them through, then filter them down until he picked ones that he liked that are way we yeah. So when did the when you when did your single come along? My favorite waste of time. When did that sort of come about? Did that come from going through records like that, or was, did you hear that no. somewhere else? Or no, no, complete accident, like everything else in my career. Um, <laughs> but basically, I got signed to uh, Sony UK, and I think in late eighty five. Yeah. Right? Did my first single song called "Pleased to Meet You," very well received. Got a lot of airplay. I was sort of deemed to be, you know, one to watch type thing. Yeah. Uh, I even got nominated for a Brit before they were called Brits as the best newcomer. Right. right. But but the song wasn't, didn't sell that much. It wasn't a chart thing. Right. And, um, but it did well for me, and, you know, yeah. got me some kind of credibility as a thing mm-hmm. to watch and keep, keep it on. Uh, I didn't win the Brit, by the way. I was fourth. <laughs> when the vote finally came down, I can't even remember who won it because it wasn't me. I didn't care. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway, so I've now got another session, but and my band guys, the musicians that I used to hire, right? Uh, I've got I've got a session booked sort of early '86, and we've rehearsed one of my own songs, and we're all got it ready in a rehearsal room before we go to the studio because the studios then were very very expensive. Yeah, uh, and. Um, so we, we knew we wanted to get it done. So we rehearsed this thing, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to do this song. It's called this. And this how it goes. We've done all the work, right? Yeah. So so I'm now, uh, I think it's like Monday, Tuesday night at home. It's past midnight. The, the session is going to start, the recording session is going to start the next day at 10 o'clock or something. Um, and then I'm sitting and I can't sleep, right? And I'm like... Another half, another half hour, another hour goes past. Still, <laughs> still, can't yeah. still can't see. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not. I'm not stressing about what we're going to do or anything. I'm just not. I'm just blindly insomnia yeah. tight, right? And whatever. And I thought, you know, oh, don't even try and go to sleep. Just give it a bit. Let's just find something to watch. Yeah. So I got the. So I've got this VHS tape out, one of many, and I, and it says on the side, uh, Bet Midler in concert. Right. I thought, okay, let's try that, see what that's like. So it's the time when she was doing this sort of massive 
gigantic shows where she's uh, been a mermaid on a wheelchair and all this weird, <laughs> yeah, all, all, weird, weird stuff. All, the, all, all these weird dance routines and things <laughs> and whatever, right? Yeah. So I'm thinking, okay, this is this will keep me awake. So this is now like three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so the show's going on. And I'm thinking, okay, I, I like her, and she's good. And she's very a great show biz lady and got great history. Yeah. Really singing a thing, right? Anyway, she comes to the section of the show, and she's going to sing a medley of songs, right? Right. Not a melody. Not a melody. A medley, right? <laughs> so it's a little snippet of four or five songs that she likes. Yeah. Right? So she sings, everyone's gone to the moon, which is a song I thought, brilliant track, yeah. great choice. And then she sung something else, a little bit of that, and the orchestra playing a little bit of that. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then suddenly she went, you're mine, you're my favorite. And I was like, whoa, hang on. <laughs> seriously, seriously, yeah. I was like, whoa. I was like, now I'm wide awake, right? And she didn't sing anything else. Just a little bit of the chorus, right? So I played that over and over for hours and hours and hours. I became obsessed with it, right? Yeah. Get up in the get get myself packed, ready to go to the studio. I, I get hold of my uh, Pete's assistant, who is now my manager on the road, yeah. a guy called Russ, and I say to Russ, "Listen, I've heard a thing through the night. I think it's called my favorite waste of time. Can you track down what that is?" I said, "And who wrote it and whatever?" I said, "Because I want to do it today. <laughs> I want I want to have a go at that." Right, yeah. he's like, "Are you insane?" The guys were all rehearsed. I went, "Never mind that." I said, "This is." So anyway, a couple of hours go by. He arrives at the studio. I'm sitting there trying my best just to do anything but record the song that we were supposed <laughs> to do. Right? Yeah. I'm like, uh, "Just got to go to the shop." I'll be back. And all that, right? And then he comes back and he goes, "Right, I've got it. Uh, I've got a cassette of it here. Play the cassette. It's, it's written by a guy called Marshall Crenshaw. Uh, he's a Canadian." I was like, "Okay, good." Um, but uh, and it was on Bet Midler released it as a B side. I think he had released it as a B side. Yeah. He said, but it's never been released as anything other than that. Right. I was like, okay. So I then go into a room on my own and try and figure out what they were playing, especially the Bet Midler version. That that one I kind of preferred, right? Yeah. So I was like, I tried to figure out what it was they were playing and whatever. This this ended up becoming a problem for me, right? Right. That, that, that I'll explain in a minute, right? So so I, I figured out and then I thought. This should have a middle eight, but it doesn't have one. So I came up with a middle eight, stuck it in it. Yeah. Added a bit, changed some of the words, made a new verse, la 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 la. And then said to the guys in the band, okay, forget what we we're going to do. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to do this. And then I, sat, I, I sung it in front of them. They all were like, whoa, that's going to be big. I went, yeah, okay. So, but we've got. We're paying eighteen hundred quid a day here, so let's get this right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So we spent we spent the next few hours jamming it back and forth until we were good to go. And unlike now, we pretty much played that straight through, right? All all, all in, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, we made some tweaks and overdubs after the fact, but in the main, we played it as a straight through until we thought, yeah, there you go. And I remember sitting in the studio that night when all the bands had left and sitting there just with me and uh, the engineer and whatever. This is going to be huge. This record, we knew. I, I can't even lie. I can't even say we tell. hoped it. Yeah. We didn't think. We didn't hope it would be big. I thought this might. This might do well. We thought this is going to be huge, man. Yeah. And I immediately, and immediately thought, it's a pop record. It's not a rock record. This could cause me problems, right? 
that was that was problem number one, and I, pr- I was proved to be right. Obviously, <laughs> after its massive success, I nearly considered not playing it to the record label, so we didn't know. Right. right. But my my manager Pete said, "You've got to play it, man. It's a worldwide smash. Come on." So we did anyway. The rest is history. But the, sort of the downside of it were what happened in my career afterwards because I was a rock act trying to fit into the wrong place, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but ultimately, which became a funny thing, right? Going back to what I said that when I tried to figure out what was going on in the record, I was listening to the Bette Midler version, right? Yeah. So I had no idea you could change a song, a key in a song. Right, right, right okay. And I didn't know you could change keys. You could change a song key, right? So I did it in her key, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> so that was, all, that was all fine for the recording, right? Yeah. And, and everything. But we, we then go on a UK tour and I'm playing all the big, places and all that and i've got to sing that, that no yeah the most, this most craziest key of all time <laughs> and and it's like the my piano player guy used to go ding 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 before i go you're not bang yeah. to get in the front yeah, of yeah. Right? wow and then i'd lose my voice the next morning and i got guys and then some some other musician in the room went you do realize you can change the key a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's too late. I said, it's miles too late. I said, I had no idea you could do that. It's like you can move it down. So anyway, in my later years, you know, uh, when I play at festivals, I've moved it from C to A. (laughs) And it's it's much more fun. The crowd still sing along. And I don't have to, like, rip my throat to shreds every night doing it. So that was one of the downsides from taking it straight off Bette Midler. I did it in her key. And a, and a woman's key, for God's sake. I had no chance. <laughs> so um, anyway, yeah, the single came out, did really, really yes. well, didn't it? And it, it was, an, it was yep. a worldwide smash. And Did your life change really quickly? Or was it sort of, was it overnight sensation? Or was it kind of? No, you're absolutely right in that regard. Uh, it was. Um it's what I became an overnight success after yeah. trying for 15 years or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at that time, right, the thing to remember is, especially for the younger yeah. person, is that there was no multi-channel or anything. Yeah. There was no multi-magazines and the internet and, you know, Sky TV and all that. There was like two TV channels, actually three, BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, and then Channel Four actually started in 1986. Yeah, we had nothing. We had nothing else. So if I had a TV show, there was the wrong side of 25 million people watching. Wow! At one time, 
because they weren't Same. watching Netflix or whatever because it didn't <laughs> exist, right? Yeah. So, so the whole, so in effect, I did the, I remember doing that, I think it was the Wogan show. Mm. Uh, the show, and then I sang, uh, obviously, Craig was sang because it was now beginning to get into the chart. And next day, I couldn't go outside. It was insane. Crazy. Uh, yeah, insane. And, and like, the bottom of my flat, I was to go open the door and be like, oh my, the street was lines. <laughs> teenagers right? all girls of course nice um and then somebody would always have to be there and get me and pick me up and security had to get involved and wherever we went and it became quite intrusive not yeah. that you're not not grateful for the success but i remember trying to go uh to my mum's 50th birthday party right in scotland i was living in london this time right so yeah fans even then without the internet got to figure out everything, where my mum lived, where my sister lived, where my brothers lived, all that. So I remember get get to fly up to Glasgow, get to my mum's, she's got her garden surrounded by people <laughs> waiting <laughs> waiting on me. And I'm and I and I'm like, no, 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 this is my mum's night, man. Don't do this. Don't, yeah, too don't. far. Too far. Yeah, I said, don't I said, this is my mum's this is all about my mum. Don't know. Don't they were hiding in the hedges. They were like at the actual venue where my mum's party was, they were in the car parks hiding. I was like, no, 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 no. So anyway, that side of it became very difficult. But yes, it was very, very quick. Yeah. And it was like, you know, so one night I'm walking down my road to go and buy milk or whatever. And, you know, lovely lady walks past and just ignores me like they always do. And then the next day, all the ladies go, woohoo! <laughs> it's a very weird concept. <laughs> <laughs> but as they say in that uh, Kipling thing, uh, treat the two imposters the same. Yeah. You know, neither is the woman who goes, who in love with you. But just because they ignore you, they don't hate you. It's neither. Yeah. You, know? just, you just happen to become a fictitious piece of someone's imagination. They like the idea of the pop pinup guy. And they're going through their teenage years and they're going to learn about boys and things. And the little guy at the end of the street is going to become more important to them than I ever will. Yeah, and yeah. you get to you get to realize that very, very quickly. Because, you know, I didn't wake up one morning and be gorgeous. Do you know what I mean? I, just didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was around all the time and everyone was just ignoring me like a normal human. <laughs> I didn't suddenly go, hang on a minute, I'll know what I'll do. Before I go into Wogan, I'll become gorgeous guy. <laughs> You know, you just don't do it. But yeah. yet the, percep the perception is that the next day you wake up and then every TV show that we did, the bigger it got, it just got worse and worse. Then it was the same in Norway. Then it was the same in Germany. Then it was the same in Italy. And yeah. it was like, it was insane. It was insane. Did it become... As I, say, the, I say the numbers are staggering because, as I say, because there was no multi-channel TV and there was only a couple of newspapers, I'd have one story in the sun. And I think, I don't know what it sells now, but it ain't much. The Sun newspaper used to sell millions and millions. They did. Everyone, everyone knew exactly who I was, what the song was, and whatever, wherever I went. Yeah. And then they start to, you know, as they do in old tabloidy ways, they then start to look at your background and rake up some money. You know, he doesn't like his simple mind's brother, and he thinks he's a better drummer. And things start, yeah, <laughs> nonsense. just nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Complete utter garbage. Uh, and they keep. Then what happens is, if you if you're like part of my family, right, and for your whole life. Like me, Top of the Pops, say, was something that was on a TV screen in the corner. It was another world, yeah. right? But for my Auntie Joan or Mary or whatever, 
suddenly that little shy guy is on top of the pops. He's yeah. now, he's he's suddenly a guy from outer space. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go back home or you go and see your friends, whatever. It all becomes very sticky and awkward. Yeah, it's like it's like they think you don't want to talk about the gas bill or you know. Is there any sausages in the house? Or, <laughs> oh, the doilies know, come out. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they yeah. think they think suddenly, and it's, it must be really strange for your family and them at that time. They think suddenly, okay, alien guy called Ron Paul, which is fact not my real name, so they shouldn't even be calling me that. That's, that's right, another yeah. story. Um, they think I want to talk about airplanes and babes and <laughs> flying flying to Jamaica tomorrow to make another video. I might have been, but I don't want to talk about it. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I want to. I want to say to you, get the kettle on and blah, you know, talk yeah, rubbish yeah. like we've always done. And that becomes very, very strange. So I was quite glad when that stopped. Right. So do you, was it frustrating being a, like a pin-up to a degree, uh, being a songwriter as well? Was Did it get yeah. frustrating at the time? Was it one of the things that you're like, you know, I'm doing deeper stuff here, people. Just Yeah. 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 I, I used to drive me mad. And I remember we did, uh, I think it was some, I think it might be in the Hammersmith Apollo. Hmm. And, um, I'd, I'd sung a song, a song called Bring Me Back That Spark, right? Which is about being very lonely and isolated and whatever. And I sung the song. And yes, of course, there was three and a half thousand people there and it was well received, right? But the next song, I had a t-shirt on, right? Like, like, like famously I did when I was on the beach in the video. Yeah. And it was cut, it was cut away at the sides, right? Mm-hmm. And I put my thumb into the side so that you could see so that the audience, I didn't do it on purpose, but I just did it, right? Yeah. In the moment. And because they could now suddenly see my body and my nipples and whatever, that, that got the biggest reaction of the whole tour. <laughs> wow. Just screaming, now, yeah. I've, I've just been bleeding my heart out of something that I truly believe in minutes before that. <clears throat> and you get, it was quite, I've got disillusioned, that's yeah. the word, by, by the whole thing. I thought, I'm in the wrong place, man. Yeah. I, need to take, I, need, I need to run away from this. And try and reinvent myself and start again. So I did. I then disappeared and worked as a producer, an arranger, all the things that I'd learned through the years. So I had to utilize them. I fell out of my record company. I wouldn't give them the new demos for the next album. I said I'd songwriter's block. Uh, <laughs> and then it, it became quite funny, actually, because they, they, they sent me around the world. They're going, okay, maybe to help you, why don't you go to St. Lucia for a couple of weeks? <laughs> I, I was like, okay, let's try it. Let's try it. Couple of weeks back, anything? No, I've no songs. <laughs> okay, why don't you try? Uh, let's go to the Bahamas. Let's try that. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, and amongst all that, they went. Okay, let's try a place in Wales. Okay, I tried all these things, and no point did I intend to give them a single song. Yeah, you should have just done them no. Kokomo by the Beach Boys. You know, uh, Bermuda, <laughs> Jamaica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, I did, so anyway, I did all these lovely trips and kept coming back going. Eh. Writer's block, you know. Sorry, lads. Anyway, they got in a massive dispute and said, "No, I couldn't leave the record company. I right. couldn't work for anyone else." Uh, but you know, they weren't going to release any more of my stuff that I'd already recorded. They were like, "No, we want new stuff or nothing." And you're in breach. And I was like, "Well, you're in breach because you signed me as a rock artist, and now you're trying to make me do this." And yeah. it became very rubbish. Anyway, so I then couldn't use Owen Paul as a name, so I was working as an engineer, uh, an arranger. And a producer is Owen McGee, which is my real name. Right. Um, and then I, I got, I then got into involved behind the scenes. Uh, ran a theatre for a while, and uh, did all sorts of brilliant things without being famous. It was great. Yeah, and, but still arty and still keeping your fingers in. Yeah, it's nice. 
Well, not only that, as as I said with the sort of songwriting thing, yeah, that never left that never left me. Right. Because you know, I might I might even be working in a running running a theatre in the West End and all that on a daily basis, like almost nearly a proper job. Um, but all the time I was still imagining a whole song in my head. Yeah. I just had no I had no desire to release it. <laughs> or <laughs> it even record it, actually. <laughs> I yeah. just didn't, you know. And then you but were, the songs, the songs were still coming like they do now. They just constant. You know? They just stream through, yeah. And then, and then you did a Latin yeah. club. Is that Latin and ballroom club? Is that right? For yes. And yes. I mean, what, what what got you into that? Was that just the music, or was it the the dancing? Or? No, no, it's just something to do. Really, the basically a friend of mine, uh, a guy called Parry, me and I, me and I have become good friends throughout the sort of eighteen years. Well. Yeah. And he knew I was like just looking for things to get involved in outside of being pop guy. And he said, listen, I've got this membership to this thing from the 1930s where you do tea dances and nice. ladies get dressed up and it's all very lovely and friendly and whatever. He said, there's a, he said, there's this school hall in the middle of the West End. It's very cheap. You can take it in there and put on these dances and, and whatever. So we, in effect, we were just rent, renting the place, right? Yeah. So then we we'd have a, sometimes it'd be live music with you know classic bands playing classics all the time from the fifties and all the rest. Yeah. Uh, and then, but mainly it was the DJ doing it, right? Yeah. Uh, but it became very successful. And the uh, the main thing about it is, and the thing that I loved about it was there was no need for security. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was lovely. They were all you know. They would be very caring and friendly, polite, and, stuff. Yeah. And, and you know, and obviously, a lot of the people when they get to a certain age, they're either divorced or single or widowers, yeah, or whatever. And they were very lonely. And these dance events would make them find new friends and new people. It was lovely, That's lovely, lovely yeah. And then randomly, completely off the wall, right? We we got so successful there, and we were renting the place that much that we said to the priests. Because there's a priest, it's underneath a place called Notre Dame, right? In Leicester Square, right? In the middle of Leicester Square, the church is still there, right? And we just, it's just an old rickety school hall underneath, like church halls. Right? Yeah. Uh, so we said to them, listen, we're the biggest hire here. Why don't we, if you're getting, it was really basically run by a janitor, right? Right. Just a janitor, right? So the janitor then going to leave, going to retire. So we said to the priest, why don't you give us the lease? And we'll make you more money than whatever you were charging us because we thought you were charging us too little. But <laughs> now we'll charge. said, we'll start charging other people for other nights because we were doing tea dances on Tuesdays, Thursdays, Wednesday afternoon, Saturday, and Sunday. But that meant Friday we could put in Morocco or Jive yeah, yeah. or whatever, buy, buy other companies and charge them reasonable money to be in the West End of London and whatever, and then pass it on to the church, right? Yeah. That, 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 that's exactly what happened. So all of a sudden now, I become a leaseholder <laughs> on a on an old church hall, right? And here the story takes a weird turn, right? So that ran for quite some years, very successful. It could virtually run itself. Mm. Right? Great, great socially. We had memberships, forms and things, and membership cards. So we people get a discount to come and do this, and they were just regulars coming out of our ears. And they would come sometimes four or five times a week, right? Yeah, hundreds of them, hundreds of them. Lovely thing. Then one day, right, with like security cameras, because the, the church hall was in the basement area right. of Notre Dame. So we'd had we'd had security cameras put up so we could see who's at the top of the door, right? Yeah. 
And this one day, uh, my business business associate says, you should look at the, you should really go up there. I was like, why am I going to look at who's at the door? I went, look at the camera. I was like, it looks like Lloyd George to me. <laughs> wow. Right? So I'd met George quite a few times before that, but I'm long gone. This is in the sort of 90s, so yeah. I'm long gone from being in the scene. And he probably never remembered me anyway. And I was right, he didn't. So, <laughs> and, and, not, and nor did I mention my name or anything. Yeah, yeah. So I got the stairs and I went, how can I help you? And George says, um, is, this, is this still a church hall that used to do punk gigs in the 70s? And whatever? I went, well, yeah, it's a church hall. I said, but we have ballroom dancing in here. I thought he was coming to dance. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm ready to get his money and go, okay, sign here. Right. So... Uh, so he says, he says, I've got a new musical and I, I'm just, I don't want to put it in a theatre like the Lloyd Webber's type theatre or whatever, yeah. or Cameron Macintosh theatre. He says, I'm looking for an unusual place because we want the audience to be in the show as well, right? Yeah. He said, can I come, can I come and look around the building? So I said, yeah. Take him downstairs. The dance is all going on. He thought it was all lovely and quaint and friendly and kind, and which was exactly what it was. And he asked me to show him all around the place. And then we get to top of the stair to go back when he's leaving. He says, okay, he says, so could we rent this every week and put a musical in here? I said, wow. yeah. I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said, okay. He said, uh, we could do a deal on that. So I'll get my business people to come down and speak to you and negotiate, whatever, whatever. I said, George, before we go any further, I said, if you're on a musical, I said, in my experience, yes, you might get awards. <laughs> I said, but some of them last like for a night. Yeah. I said, so he says, oh, yeah. I said, well, what happens if you only last a week? Well, I was, what do we do then? Yeah. He said, well, we're going to refurbish the whole place. We're going to put in showers and dressing rooms and uh, seating instead of the ballroom floor, put theater seating and bars and blah, blah. They yeah. actually wanted a bar in the middle of the show, which was interesting. So two of the cast were serving drinks to the audience, which was amazing. <laughs> and, and, and it was a copy of the script, right? Yeah. Which, be, which became an interesting problem with Westminster Council, but I'll tell you that in a minute. Mm-hmm. So so I, I said, okay. He said, well, he said, I'll tell you what, before the guys even speak to you, I'll tell you this, right? He said, we'll refurbish it, the whole place, top to bottom. We'll pay the rent, whatever you say, per week. If it lasts a night, we'll leave the fixtures and fittings and we walk away. Right. And the ho- he said, the PA system's yours, the light rig is yours, the seating's yours, the new dress rooms, all the stuff is all yours. I was like, send in the team. I'm ready, I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm ready to sign. <laughs> so anyway, that's exactly what happened, right? Yeah. Suddenly there was, we had to move the ballroom people into a different building, uh, was called, which used to be called the Swiss Centre. Uh, in Leicester Square in London, uh, so that was still going. Mm. We just put it some. We just put it somewhere else, and then they completely rebuilt our, our old, dilapidated church hall into a full-fledged theatre. Crazy, right. crazy. So then, so then, there's multitude of problems coming next, right? Yeah. So the show was called Taboo, right? Right. Yeah, you won a lot of. Yeah, you done well with that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So here comes the problems, right? So. In their lease with the priests who are above, amen, <laughs> uh, uh, we had to run it by them what kind of things we were putting into their church hall. Right. right. Okay. So Taboo was about the 80s 
the gay scene, the drug scene. <laughs> we then reading, I remember me and my partner reading the script going, oh, no. Oh, yeah. You've had it oh, already. No, we've, got, we've got a problem. These Catholic priests up here, they're not going to have this. Yeah. So anyway, we'd, we'd take it up and go, uh, um, the meeting, they're usually monthly meeting with the priests. Okay, so we're going to build a theatre and we'll have a brilliant deal. I said, you guys, have got, the money's going to go through the roof here. I said, you know, forget getting a couple hundred quid a week for a church hall. I said, we're going to get grands there for yeah. you guys. So they're excited by that, obviously. Right? <laughs> and they say, so what, what's going on? And we're like, uh, well, um, there's a pop star guy who's written a musical about a period of time in the 80s and whatever, new romantic scene and whatever. And we just, okay, can we see this? We were like, okay, you can see page 17. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see the bit. You can't see the bit in the phone box that's written in where something weird happens with this guy and that guy. Uh, we just, we were hyper trying to miss out all the bits, right? Anyway, they, anyway, they sanctioned it, so that was good. Nice. Uh, and they, so they signed off and said, okay, go ahead. So sure enough, like you just said, the show won awards. We needn't have worried about whether it lasts a week or a day. We got three and a half years out of it, sold Crazy. out every night, sold out every night. They just couldn't, no one could get a ticket. And it was like full of, People who are actually written into the show, like Steve Strange, would show up, or Johnny Depp would show wow, up. Wow, crazy! And all uh, it was just constant, you know. So they then put our theatre, which came from nowhere. I think it was the first new theatre in the West End in something like seventy-five, hundred years. That's just crazy. Oh, they were on the map. We're in the map, yeah, you know. Uh, and then we did that, and then uh, an American comedian saw the show, and uh, a famous one whose name escapes me right now. She saw the show. And then spoke to George. And then George, has people spoke to us and went, you need to close the show down. We're not going to do it anymore. I'm like, huh? Yeah, we're moving it to Broadway. She doesn't, <laughs> want it on. she doesn't want it on in the UK when it's going to open there. Wow. And she now, she's now paid multi-millions for the rights. She Crazy. wants it shut here. Anyway, we'd, as I said, we've had three and a half years of it. Sold out every night. Mm. So we, we, we couldn't complain. Plus, we now had a full-on theatre with everything running. Yeah. Running water, showers, <laughs> like light, lighting red PA to die for, yeah. you know, blah blah blah. So then we became moving into that game and got other shows that lasted a good while and while. It was a brilliant time, absolutely brilliant, it's amazing, a fantastic, fantastic show. And the, and some brilliant people were in it. Matt Lucas was in it. Oh, was he? Uh, wow. Yeah, Julian Clary was in it. I loved Julian. Uh, yeah. Mark, the guy from Neighbours, his name escapes me. He was in it for a while. Uh I know you the mean. Matt Luc- the Matt Lucas thing is funny, right? So Matt Lucas is playing this character and I, and I, and I see him doing the rehearsals and I thought, that's Matt Lucas. Yeah. So after many rehearsals, whatever, he, he grabs me to the side and I went, come on. I went, yeah. I said, we know each other. I went, do we? <laughs> he said, yeah, we do. He said, um, my first TV appearance, I was in an audience on Saturday Superstore on the BBC. <laughs> and, I, and I and I asked you a question. No way! Live, wow. live on live on telly. I went, what? He went, yeah. <laughs> he said, he said, I've no idea how to show you because there's no internet. Yeah. He said, but that's it's true. He said, you you. I asked you a question live on national television. So I was like, okay, uh, okay, leave it at that. So <laughs> I then that night I phoned my mom and I went, mom. You still got all the old tape recordings of me when I was on telly in the 80s. Yeah. Can you look for one that's labeled Saturday Superstore, blah, 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 whatever time I t- try to have a rough guess at what the date would be. Blah, blah, blah. 
Anyway, she said, certainly do. And there is Mark Lucas asking me a question live on television. I was like, wow, man. That's so weird. It's, that's incredible. So that, was really, that was a weird random moment, you know, and we're still good friends. That's lovely. Oh, that's really nice. At least you kept in touch. It's really lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Crazy. So crazy. And then you, so you took a break from recording stuff and then you've, you've basically yeah. come back recently, haven't you, as well? You've come back with some new albums, which have been yeah. very good. I've, I've, um, on Spotify, if people want to find it on Spotify, you've got some great songs on there. And then oh, you, thank you. You're very kind. No, no, it's true. They're really, really good. Really, really good. About Time too, is isn't it? Is that the second one? Yeah, that was that was the second album, which took me 25 years to make. Uh, you can tell because <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, you got to get on Spotify, check it out. If you're not heard, it's, it's really, really good. And then you redid um, Favourite Waste of Time during lockdown, didn't you? Like a sort of jam special. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it was one of those things. I, it was, I was, again, it was an accident, really. Yeah. Obviously, everybody's in lockdown. The whole world can't do things. And it's a real shock to the system for everyone yeah. from any walk of life, right? It was a really weird time. And then after a few days gone by, I remember thinking, sitting going, well, if I'm doing nothing, I wonder if <laughs> Lee John from Imagination is doing nothing. Oh, Lee John. I wonder, I wonder if Toya's doing nothing. I wonder, and all these names come out of my head, right? Yeah, so yeah. I thought, well, why don't I try and record a rough thing, get onto Zoom or whatever, yeah. and then talk them through it and go, guys, we're not doing Favourite Waste of Time as a song, but we're going to do a jam and you just play what you like and sing what you like and then I'll piece it all together. Yeah. So we've got guys from Big Country doing it, a couple of guys from Simple Minds, we've got Toya, as I mentioned, Cheryl Baker from Bucks Fizz. It was okay. such a random thing. And, and one then, person you've missed as well. Well, well Matt Lucas Matt is Lucas, on there. Matt Lucas, that's right, yeah. <laughs> right? So I get in touch with Matt and I go, right, Matt, here's the thing, right? I said, I'm putting together this track. It's just for fun, nothing else. I said, whatever. I said, just, it'll be like the chorus circling round and round. You know, I said, we've got violin players, legends in Scotland doing fiddles and accordions and things and whatever. We've got big country, sounding like big country things on their bit and whatever. I said said to Matt, just do what you like, right? I said, so this became quite funny as well, so. I said, just do a thing that you like. He said, "Would well, you see you going to send me a track?" I went. He said, "I said, do you need the do you need the track?" I went, "No, actually, not." I said, "Because I don't have it right yet." I said, "I don't have it yet." He went, yeah. "Okay." He said, uh, "He said, okay, I'll just do something." So, so he sends me back a thing on a WhatsApp note, whatever it's called, mm. voice note thing, and it's him <laughs> going, "You're mine. You're my favorite waste of time." <laughs> right. So. <laughs> So I thought, this is brilliant. This will work, right? So we, we pieced the whole thing together, right? And then, as I say, so his bit would come in, he sings that, and Toya would go, ooh, Toya! <laughs> kind, of, kind of Toya noises, which is brilliant. Yeah. And all these people, these people were doing exactly what I thought. Nothing. Sitting at home. So they had no excuse to turn me down, right? <laughs> so, so the theory worked, right? Yeah. So the, funny, the funniest bit is, right, is that Matt sends me his clip, but he sends it, uh, with his visual in it, right? Right. So he's in his house somewhere and he's going, you're mine, you're my favourite waste of time, <laughs> whatever, right? So he, he then sends me a message going, glad to help. I said, he said, I hope that works for you. Can't wait to see the video. Yeah. I suddenly went, hang on a minute. <laughs> we, di- we didn't ask anyone else to film anything. <laughs> <laughs> He was the only bet we had <laughs> because he just did it for the hell of it, right? I'm like, yeah. oh no, 
I'm going to have to get Carol Decker to go and sing it somewhere and film it. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go back to everyone. Yeah. Like I said, Carol Decker or Lee John or Toya or whatever, the Bucks Feathers and Big Country and Simple Minds and Phil Cunningham and nah, 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 nah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something like 40 people on it, right? Yeah. And I was like, I was like, okay, guys, thank you so much. The record's coming out shortly, but we need you to film the thing you did. They're like, <laughs> can't remember what I did. I was like, okay. I said, we'll send it and we'll point you to which bar it is, and then you do a thing over that bar. Anyway, it got pieced together, and it's been a roaring success for us. It was very, very fun. I, I but think it was not. There was no plan in it. It was just fun. I think the the best guest star you had on it was your mum. Is it your mum that was on yes. it? Yes, yes, my yeah. mum's in it. Yes. Yeah, your mum was like, that's lovely. <laughs> That's exactly what I'd do. I'd throw my mum in it as well. Like, hundred percent, right? So I, I, I realise all the guests are going to do it, and, and then we're getting the clip centres every day of what they've done. Gary Barnacle, the legend of the '80s sax player, still is a legend. Uh, he's on it. It's just I could just guys at the alarm are on it, etc., etc., etc. And I thought, mum, <laughs> you're going to do your man. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> It's so, great fun. Uh, you, um, are you out touring at the moment? Are you doing the um, bits and bobs? Yeah. Yeah, we started, obviously, that you know that whole song, the whole recording of that song was during lockdown when we couldn't do anything. And yeah. The entertainment business and the live scene in particular, theatres and festivals and things, were a no-no mm. for obvious reasons, you know, um, which is, like, been really strange. Uh, and then, obviously, then you get into... Second wave, which turned into some other bit, and then you couldn't do it again. That's right, and yeah. it seemed to be, it seemed to be like hospitality was at the end of the queue. Yeah. So, you know, hotels and events, just clubs and nightclubs were the last bit, and theatres and, like I said, festivals. But now it's all starting to come back to into place. But yeah, the sort of the downside is is that again, for obvious reasons, a lot of the promoters and bookers are a bit. They don't like to pay the deposit as much as they used to. <laughs> yeah, Let's put it that way, right? <laughs> Norm- normally, if yeah. I get booked for Rewind, right? Massive place, right? Yeah. Massive event. There's three of them throughout the UK. There's 25,000 people each, minimum. Wow. Uh, no- normally, they book you like two years in advance and they'll give you a deposit to secure you for that day. Yeah. For obvious, for obvious reasons, then you have to get your positions sorted out and they, we don't want them to lose other jobs that they might have to take so we say you know that day now yeah. they're going uh, we're not sure we can pay the deposits like last time <laughs> but like well i'm not sure i can come <laughs> and they went well then again it's oh you got to laugh at these situations they go yeah. well actually there might be nowhere to come to anyway <laughs> <laughs> but luckily it's now you know everyone's starting to go hang on a minute yeah. We seem to be the right. We seem to be the right side of the pandemic thing. We do, and you know we've got all the rules in place. If it, if it right breaks again, and these these events are going to happen, and now as you see, I've started to I get back into the live scene, which I, I adore. I've always liked it, probably more than any other part of the yeah. game. TV is fine, radio interviews are fine, well, but live when you're right in the front of an audience, you're trying out a thing. And you get the honest reaction straight back at you. I mean, the, I mean, obviously you don't get to play new songs at an eighties festival, but what you do get is you get the realization that somebody like me, who maybe has only got one song that anyone really knows mm. to any great proportion. I'm, you know, I'm a realist. I know that's a fact. But to, when I walk on stage and I'm not quite sure who on Paul is when I get announced by Pat Sharp or whatever, as soon as I go, "You're my 
25,000 people sing it back <laughs> at me. That's like, it. Bang. And you realize these people are coming to these festivals, which sometimes last three days over the weekend, right? Mm. And they're get, they're trying to get, they're at that age. They're trying to get away from their mortgages and their jobs and however many children they've got. They want to just have a break, you know? Yeah. They just want to get away from it. And, and we become, we, me or Nick Kershaw or Tony Hadley or Lamar or whatever, we become the conduit for them to let it all hang out and they get dressed up and all that. But for me, you know, much that I tried not to be the one Paul guy and kind of denied that I was him for years and years and years. Yeah. When you get to that, when you get to that moment, I realized what it meant to everyone else. Yeah. There was something, there was something in that song, unlike other people who might be even bigger than me or have more hits than me. Yeah. There's something in that song that connected to the planet. And there's, and that's where they like to revisit. And, it, and I realized how much it meant to everyone else. So when I, when I do these events, be it Rewind or Let's Rock at the 80s or whatever it is, in any part of Europe, that is, I mean, it's the most brilliant, brilliant time. The other upside is, is that me, Nick Hayward, say, or uh, Nick Kershaw, uh, like I said, Tony Harvey, well, there's no enemies here. Yeah, we're all having the t- we're all having the time of our lives. We bring our own children, and we all have nice lunches at the behind the <laughs> scenes. And, well, nice. because because record companies used to try and make us against each That's other. That's right. Yeah, competitive. Yeah. Yeah. So so if it was like Spandau against Duran, and then it would be Howard Jones against Nick Kershaw, Beyond Paul against Nathan Moore from Brother Beyond, or whatever, they used to create that. We didn't feel like that at all. Yeah. But they would quite they would quite often keep us apart. Well, that's all gone now. It's in the bed, and we just have a lovely time. So if I'm there with my jewelry, we reminisce, or we talk about family and things. Well, that's really not. It then, sounds like a. a and, then we, there, yeah. and, and then we go. Then we go. Oh, hang on, man. Have you finished your lunch? Yeah. I just. Got, I'll be back in a minute. I'm just going to sing my hit right back. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brilliant time. Brilliant. It's amazing. It. It's lovely and communal by the sounds of it. It's lovely. Yeah. So, so if um if people want to find out about you about you, where's the best place to go? Is it your website? Well. My daughters would say websites don't matter. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's what they say. They go, Dad, you've got a website. So what? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they were like, they were like, no one uses that. That's old school. I was like, okay. So I've got, I've now got, I've got own Paul official page on Instagram, awesome. Facebook, Facebook the same own Paul official page. Twitter is own Paul real, and through those mediums or whatever they're called, uh, they will take you to the ownpaul.com website, <laughs> and you can get the new tracks and you can hear stuff or stream stuff or download or buy merch or whatever and find out it's got all this stuff about when the new shows are coming and when there's a new record coming out and so on and so forth it's all there that's awesome thanks for talking to me today I've had a lovely chat with you it's been great to catch up and have a chat it's been wonderful absolute pleasure mate thank you if you enjoyed today's episode make sure to subscribe and leave us a review Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.